As I was studying this afternoon, it just struck me what a wonderful, amazing heritage we have as, as Calvary Chapel. And it is a, a heritage that's unique. Time Magazine wrote an article many years ago about this incredible church that was reaching out to a lost generation called hippies. And I remember the simplicity of those early years. Connie and I were attending a Baptist church, and like probably some of you in here, I see some gray heads like mine in here, some of you younger that have no idea about what I'm about to say. But I remember the simplicity of just the beauty of those early days and how we had an opportunity to witness a unique and wonderful move of the Spirit. And Pastor Chuck was so graciously blessed with the ability to look past the success and simply give credit to the Lord for what he did. And I remember sitting in concerts that, frankly, the sound was terrible and the bands were terrible and whoever was teaching probably, you know, couldn't link two or three sentences together, but there was a simplicity to those early days. And that simplicity is exactly what we find in the book of Acts. It wasn't a professional church. It wasn't a bunch of theologians. It was not a group of well-learned men, wonderfully coiffed hair, if they had any hair. It was not a beautiful building like we sit in. Very often it was a cluster of rocks under a tree. It was a little bit out of control at times control of man, but perfectly in control by the Holy Spirit. God was at work. And brothers and sisters, I long for that freshness. That freshness of just seeing God do something amazing. Not repeating what he's already done. Not being unthankful for what the Lord has already done. But something we can say, we were there. We saw God do this. And so tonight we pick up in chapter 4 here in the book of Acts. And we'll finish 4 and begin chapter 5. But as we begin this, the dangers of ministry become very clear. And where God is at work, the enemy will also be at work. And where the Holy Spirit is moving, the enemies of God and the enemies of the church will also be moving. Persecution will come. People will try and divide. Men will try and lay hold. People will try and take credit. 
People will step up and step in and say, instead of thus says the Lord, thus says and fill in the blank of their name. Brothers and sisters, unless the God that framed the universe with his hands speaks life into his church, unless the Holy Spirit empowers that church, then the church at very best is doomed to go wherever it can go in its own power. And at worst, it may even be used for the enemy's purposes. And I pray that as we dig into to this meaty part, portion of the book of Acts, moving forward as, as we now get into the heart of the church, now at work in the world, that we find a little bit of ourselves. That we look to see where we're at in this picture and in this mix. And that we ask ourselves some very simple questions. What are we doing to see his kingdom come and his will be done? Are we attempting to keep status quo? Because I can tell you there's one thing that Pastor Chuck never was, and that was status quo. He was about as anti-status quo as a man I've ever met in my entire life. And I served alongside of him for nearly a quarter of a century. I watched him take risks that no one would take. I watched him do things that people said was impossible. Not because he did it, but because he truly trusted God to do it. And so as we move on, let's ask ourselves, are we that kind of church that the Holy Spirit can simply pour into and we'll do what the Holy Spirit asks? Are we willing to be a church that's on fire for God? Because it takes bravery. It takes fearlessness. It takes the ability to say with everything that's within you that, Lord, if you send me, I'll go. And if you send me, I know you'll empower me. And if you've called me, I know you'll take care of it. It takes fearlessness. Because the dangers are going to come. The critics are going to speak. The persecution is going to be there. The question is, are we going to stand? And are we going to face those dangers knowing that the Lord our, our God is with us and no weapon fashioned against us will prosper, that indeed he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are the called according to his purposes. It's in that that we move on. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for this church and thank you for the challenge of this passage of Scripture as we see the dangers begin to unfold. And Lord, we face many of the same dangers that the early church faced. We face them in a different way, but you are the same God. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we trust you. And we invite you now to move in our midst, and we ask you to do great things in our presence. May we miss none of what you've called us to. And would you bless us with your presence by your spirit. Spirit, come. Inhabit your praises of your people as they've been lifted up to you. And now instruct us by the power of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. A couple places in the sanctuary you see the elements of communion and we'll be partaking 
uh, later on as we get into our time of prayer. Pick up with me now, if you would, in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. And now, or but, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul, and neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now again, please remember the context of the day and time. It was an agrarian society. People traded in things like chickens and goats and sheep. They gave each other wheat and produce, and someone would pick grapes from their vineyard and offer them to someone who had extra grain for flour. And so that was the way that they did things. So it was very common for people, in essence, to have a more commonly connected lifestyle. We are connected now more through Vons and Food for Less uh, and our, our daily trips to you know, Costco and Sam's Club for those types of things. But there was a great communal sense in that time in the early church because there were no social safety nets. There were no places that people could turn. The Roman government actually hated the Christians to begin with and they were in power. And so the church itself took care of its own. It fulfilled the very thing that James reminded us that we should do. How can you say that if you see that your brother has need and you harden your heart towards him, that the love of God dwells in you? You see, they took that very seriously. And so the early church, rather than doing things with debit cards and dollars and cents and writing checks, and giving of their tithe to the church so that the church could take care of those things corporately, very often they actually sold things that they had and provided for people in need. So it was a very communal lifestyle at that time. And we do much the same thing through the support of the church itself, the church being that organism whereby those things happen. You all as part of this church through the things that you do in a manner of giving, specifically in tithes and offerings, are supporting people in poverty all over the world. You're supporting missionaries all over the world. You're taking care of the needs of homeless people here in our own community. You're providing for people to have clothing. You're doing all of those things, the very things mentioned here in a different way through that which is the church. But it's to the same end. It's to the glory of God. No church ever is for the glory of man. And any man that takes that glory is in a bad place with God. Because the glory of the church belongs to the Lord alone. And not to a person. Ever. There should be no plaques erected to anyone. I had a conversation just before Pastor Chuck went home to be with Jesus about that very thing because there literally was a group of people who wanted to erect a monument to him at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And he said, and I quote, if they do, I'll come back from heaven and destroy it myself. (laughs) I told you I'd tell him. The church is the glorious instrument of God and it's for his purposes. And we must never forget that. All that we are, we are because of him, for him and unto his glory. And to that end, they had all things in common. 
And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, that was not a popular thing then. And it's becoming, once again, an unpopular thing. Oh, you Jesus freaks, you believe that Jesus Christ was actually resurrected from the dead. Well, that's physically impossible. Well, no, it's not physically impossible if you're the one that created the physical universe in which it's physically impossible. Because you can physically do anything you want with your physical universe that you created. And so I have no problem saying to you that I believe that Jesus Christ, God's own Son, God incarnate in human flesh on this earth, was in fact resurrected from the dead, and he lives forevermore. Amen? And great grace was upon them all. Don't you love that? Would you like to have God's great grace upon you? Great grace. I don't exactly know what great grace is. I know what grace is. It's God's unmerited favor upon my life. It is the riches of Christ at his own expense poured out upon me. It's giving me what I do not deserve ever. And I would surely love to have that in greatness. In magnitude. In exponential powers of ten. You know, like grace cubed or whatever. But great grace was upon them. And not just some of them. Upon all of them. God was at work in the early church. And it was because God was at work in the early church, it was because they were doing things for the Lord, it was because they were planting churches, it was because they were sending out pastors, it was because they were taking care of the needs of the community, it was because God was using them that Satan tried to tear down that church. An attacked church is a church that God is using. Now, I'm not saying if you're sinning and you're getting attacked for that sin, that the sin is somehow sanitized. But I am simply saying, when you're walking with the Lord and doing what God's called you to do, you're going to face persecution. You're going to get ugly letters. You're going to have people say mean things. There are going to be people who will misunderstand, and they will rise up in mass against you. And we've already seen that here in the book of Acts. The Pharisees were furious. The Sadducees were out of their mind. The Jewish religious leadership, look, these guys are taking our convert. Look, we're, we're losing money here. They're taking our stuff. We want to control the things. Notice the result. Great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed them, each one as one had need. Now be careful here because the Lord is not saying, and I am not saying to you, you need to go sell everything you have and bring it here to the church and throw it at my feet. If you do, I'll probably slap you. In the name of Jesus. In love. This is a very specific time and for a very specific reason, a very specific purpose, these things were done. It was how the early church began. It sprouted forth. Now I can tell you people have done these things, and I've witnessed them. 
But God is not making a case that everyone here in the church needs to go home immediately, call their mortgage banker and go, hey, I'm giving my house away. It's not what he's saying. But what he was showing was people that were so dedicated to the work of the Lord at that time, because it was going to cost them their lives, many of them, that the stuff in their lives mattered much less than the great grace in their life. Brothers and sisters, the stuff in our lives needs to take a back seat to the great grace of God. And if it doesn't, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We cannot love the things of this earth and love God supremely. Now, we can like the things of this earth. Even some of the things of this earth are necessities of life, but it is he who gives richly to his children the things that we have need of. They are not our things. They're his things. So you don't need to worry about hoarding them up. You can let them go. And if God tells you to sell something and give it to somebody, you do it. Because I guarantee you, if you're well-pleasing to God, he's going to take care of your needs. That's his plan for his church. There was not anyone among them who lacked. You see, now along comes this man, Joseph who is also named Barnabas by the apostles, which his name actually means son of encouragement. And he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Now, this is an interesting thing because Cyprus would have been Roman-controlled but heavily Greek-influenced, and it's an island, still an island today. Not Though there was a Jewish population at the time, there's still a Jewish population on the island of Cyprus. But you see, Levites, those of the Levitical order, that was the priestly tribe, were not actually allowed to own property. And so this man apparently had inherited something uh, in the way of property. It's likely the only way he would have garnered such a thing because they weren't allowed to own it. And so here in view is this man who's a Levite from Cyprus. Having land, he sold it. And brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we have this situation that will establish the background for what's going to come next. And so let's peel this onion back a little bit and look at some of the dangers of ministry. And before we get there, look at what a healthy church looks like because it forms the backdrop for it. You see, there's, there's a healthy generosity first. There's a church that is concerned not just with themselves, but with others. One of the great things that we face in our modern society, in our Western society, in our very wealthy society, the wealthiest society on the planet Earth, is that we have vastly more than we actually need. And so many times our needs get replaced by wants. And then our wants increase, and by the time we get down to actually thinking about it, our wants have become our needs, and we don't even know what needs really are. And having traveled, you're going to get to meet this week. We have Pastor Carlos and his family coming in from El Salvador, so all of our Salvadoreño brothers and sisters that are here, you're going to get to meet somebody from your home country, and he's going to share with us a little bit. We also have Pastor Jorge coming uh, from La Tunca in El Salvador. Uh, and many of you who have 
family in, in much of Central and South America, Latin America, Mexico, uh, we know that we are blessed beyond measure here. Uh, and there they have people who truly know what it's like to have great need. But a healthy church sees real need and does something about it. And we are doing that as a church. We have very vibrant helps type ministries in this church. You see, a church depends on faith-filled, Bible-believing prayer to, to understand and to, to bring about the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And, and how can you know that that's going on? You can see it in the fruit of the church. You, you want to know if Ichapod has happened. You want to know if the glory has departed. You can see it in the deadness of a church. When a church self-promotes and self-propagates and, and turns inwardly and no longer sees those needs around them and no longer reaches out to the world around them, no longer is interested in the Great Commission, does not care about making disciples, but only cares about putting people in the pews so that the people can do something for them, then that church has lost the power of the Holy Spirit. Because a real church that's really on fire for the Lord is going to be a church through which God can work externally, not just internally. And that healthy church is unified. And we think about how the things that we are blessed with here have come about. It's not because of any one person. It's because of the God that is the, the king of the universe placing upon people's hearts the desire to see the kingdom come and his will be done doing their individual parts and collectively when you add those together it makes great things. That's God's plan. It's not some great plan by an individual, not myself nor anybody else. It's the Holy Spirit speaks into a person's life and that person hears the word of the Lord and simply goes about trying to do everything they can to see God's purposes accomplished. That's a healthy church. The first thing that we see in a healthy church is that church is unified. There isn't division. There's not schism. People aren't going around say, I'm for thus and I'm for so. That, you know, I'm, I'm of the, this ministry or I'm of that ministry. A healthy church is a unified church because there's only one God. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's exactly one faith. There's only one church. That church has many expressions, but there's only one church, and we're all part of it. There are all kinds of different places where that church gathers. That's why when you read the letters that are in your Bible, it's to the church at Colossae. It's the church in Galatia. It's the church at Ephesus. It's the church in Corinth. They're just simple geographic locations where the church was gathered. But it was still the church, the one church, in all of its glorious beauty. That church is unified. And I would say to you that that, that church is not stagnant. When we start to hinder spiritual life, we become stagnant. And then the church just becomes another religious institution. It was the very thing that Pastor Chuck so clearly said that he prayed never happened to us as Calvary Chapel. 
that we would never become another institution or another denomination. That we would always be open to be a new wineskin, to have the fresh wine of the Spirit, Spirit poured into us so we could be whatever God wants us to be at that time. That's what caused me to fall in love with the ministry of Calvary Chapel. When the Holy Spirit is work, God's people are united together in, in basic doctrinal belief. They're united together in fellowship. They're united together in giving. They're united together in worship. They're united together because we have a common purpose and goal. A second thing that a Spirit-filled church is a magnified church. It's going to have favor with all the people. God is going to be glorified, and it's going to be glorified in diversity. Because we're not all the same. We don't think the same. But God is going to be glorified in all of us. Not just some of us. Not just one of us. But in all of us. Do you ever look at yourself as the opportunity to be a mirror for God? For God to magnify himself through you? If you know anything about radio telescopes, especially those that are optical radio telescopes, they are not single mirrors. When you look at the great optical telescopes that we have in our world today, they are multiple mirrors all linked together, reflecting the same image to the same point from different angles. Did you know that? Take a look at the Keck telescopes on, Mount, on Mauna Kea, on Hawaii, the world's largest. All kinds of little mirrors are only about this big, but they make up one big mirror. We're supposed to magnify Jesus. So when the light comes from your direction, you magnify Jesus back to the throne of God. And people see that. And it comes through my life, and it magnifies Jesus, and they see God. And it comes through each of our lives individually, but collectively, we make this powerful image of Jesus. That's our goal. And that's what this church did. God got the glory. They magnified Jesus. That kind of church is going to have its enemies. I think back to Pastor Chuck, some of the stories he used to tell. He was so hated initially that people thought he was crazy. And you've all heard the stories, and they're true. Every Chapel Costa Mesa, they, they put in new carpet. The dirty hippies were coming. Somebody complained about it. Chuck said, well, tear the carpet out. We're going to take the people. Forget the carpet. That's magnifying Jesus. That's saying it, it's not about making us who have been around a long time comfortable. That's about us attracting people to our Savior. You talk about the forerunner of cultural relevance. It was Jesus. He reached every last person right where they were. Without compromise, I might add. But he told his message in a way that it reached the heart of the hearer. A spirit-filled church will also be a multiplied church. It's going to grow. Check this out. How many did they start with from what we know in the book of Acts? Somebody's got to know the number. It was 120, right? There were 120 gathered in the room on that night of Pentecost. So the church was birthed with 120 people. By this time in the book of Acts, it's already thousands. The church multiplied. The whole congregation was into it. Why? 
Because they simply reflected Christ. They didn't sit around and worry about, you know, who was in charge of what. They simply reflected Jesus. Now, a great church has to have organization. We got a lot of we have tons of organization here. And praise God for it. It's necessary. But the organization should never control the ministry. The ministry should control the organization. It should be about doing ministry. Not about the organization itself. And when you lose that, you literally lose the heart of God. Because then you start caring more about the pews than you do people. And you start worrying about the color of the walls as opposed to the people that are sitting in the pews. Now all those things, oh, they're important. Don't misunderstand what I believe Scripture clearly teaches and what I'm conveying to you. We want to take great care of God's stuff. And we we don't want to do anything poorly. But if I have to choose between ministering to a person who desperately needs Christ and worrying about whether we got a stain on the carpet, I'm choosing ministering to the person who desperately needs Christ. Amen? That's where we need to be. We can clean the carpet, but we may not be able to recall that person. We may not get another chance. That kind of church multiplies because the Lord's in it. And so as you see these things, there are just some wonderful things. The church was also sanctified. Why? Because they did what God asked them to do. They were being Christ-like. The word sanctified means to be saintly or set apart. They were just simply being like Jesus. And when you simply be like Jesus, you are a saint. None of you are getting your own medals, by the way. And we're not building any niches to you so you can have like St. Jeff in the hallway or anything. But you're all saints. And as we collectively are saints unto God, set apart for Him, then we also see Him at work in us in sanctification as a whole. Because as you become more like Jesus, and I become more like Jesus, and we all become more like Jesus, there is a sanctifying process that comes upon the church itself, and we affect each other. So important for us to be that way. The early church was this way. They shared what they had. They did whatever they did. They did for the betterment of the body of Christ. They didn't go, well, you know, I'll give you two hours next week. They were all in because they were all saints. And while not every believer can be like Peter and John here with amazing boldness, maybe you're never going to preach a message like these guys didn't stood up and said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Maybe you don't have that calling in your life. Maybe that's not you. Maybe God's not giving you that gift. 
But every last one of you does have the ability to be used of the Lord to build up the church, to edify the church, to encourage the church, to build up the church, to take a part of what the church is as a sanctified, unified, magnified, multiplied, glorified body. You take up your part and God will do great things with us. You see, it was that church that Satan tried to silence through external pressure. It brought along people, well, you guys are going nowhere. I mean, come on, where's your 10-year plan? You know, I mean, look at us. We have these nice buildings. What do you got? You got a rock. You got a tree. I mean, we have business cards. What do you got? You don't even have shoes. They had the one thing they needed, the power of the Holy Spirit. And God was at work in that church. And may we be like that church. We may not look like every other church. We may not do the same things that every other church does. We may do some of the things exactly the same way. But God can't be put in a box. The heavens and the earth cannot contain his glory. So why should we try to say that the glory of God only dwells here? It's big enough for all. And it's diverse enough for all. So let's let God be God. Let's let him do what he wants to do. And if we do, because he may not be able to attack us from the outside... He may well do exactly what comes next in chapter 5. Look at it with me, verse 1, Acts chapter 5. Satan had failed in his attempt to silence the witness of the church. But he won't give up. He'll simply change strategy. Because he's a thief, he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a destroyer. He is everything Scripture says he is. And he doesn't give up. And so if he can't attack from without and win, he will attack from within to try and win. Verse 1, but, please circle that word. It's very important because that means it's in light of. It's the same word that you could translate therefore. So looking back at what's just been said, what do you have? You have a unified church, a magnified church, a multiplied church, a sanctified church, an edified church. You've got a church that's fully functioning in the glory of the Lord. But, so when you've got a church that's on fire for God, when you have people who love the Lord, you can count on the enemy trying to put someone in that church on the inside. Look what happens. But a certain man named Ananias and his Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. There's a couple of things before moving on you need to note. God didn't tell him to do this. No one had a gun pointed at them. They weren't forced into this situation. It's very clear that because the people that we just read about in chapter 4... Many of the people in the church sold what they had and laid it at the apostles' feet, and the church multiplied, and the church was glorifying God, and the church was sanctified, the church was being built up. Because of that, that's the but. Because of that, 
A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. And his wife, being aware of it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they're in it together. Now remember Joseph, known as Barnabas. What did he do? Did the same thing that most of the rest of the people did. He actually owned some land. He was a Levite on the island of Cyprus. He traveled from Cyprus. Remember, this is in Jerusalem. And comes to Jerusalem, brings the money from the sale of that, and puts it at the apostles' feet. So you have genuine faith being exhibited in a genuine work of the Lord. And now you have somebody who comes along and says, I want the attention that those people are getting. I want the glory that those people are getting. I want to be famous in ministry like those people are famous in ministry. And so what do they do? They're pretending to do the same thing. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart with a lie to the Holy Spirit and kept back part of the price of the land for yourself? That's called discernment. How he knew that, likely God simply shared it with him. While it remained, was it not your own? In other words, nobody forced you, Ananias, to do this at all. So what's your motivation is the question. Satan had failed to silence the church. He attacks from the outside, now he comes from the inside. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, all the way until the time your wife brought these funds and put them at the apostles' feet, you could have turned around and done the right thing. And either brought it all and really been genuine before the Lord, or taken all of it for yourself and at least been intellectually honest with yourself and said, I'm greedy. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? For you have not lied to men, but to God. And family, there's a really strong warning in this passage for us tonight. You can't fool God with your religiosity. You're not fooling Him. Neither am I. Matter of fact, Paul would go on to write that all of your good works are as filthy rags. So get over it. Get over yourself. And realize that if God allows us to do anything, it's only His grace at work in us that allows us to do anything that might have kingdom value to begin with. So let Him have the glory for it. It's His. It belongs only to Him. It's not me. It's not us. It's not the collective we. All we do, we do to the glory of the Lord in this place. 100% of it. And then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. In other words, he kicked the bucket. Stone dead as a doornail, right there. Now, there are some of you that probably need this warning. Others of you have already got it and you don't need it. Some of you have maybe shared this with other people. I want you to notice it's pretty clear that the Holy Spirit was actually working in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira because they lied to the Holy Spirit. So, In one sense, these were two believers who tried to put one over on God. 
it's not a good idea to try and steal the glory of the Lord, ever. Because he may not expose you immediately, he may not have you found out instantaneously, but when it comes down to sharing his glory, he is unwilling to share his glory with anyone. Period. And end of conversation. And he does not tarry with mankind forever. God is serious about sin, and he is especially serious about it in the lives of believers. And so with great fear, all these things came upon those who heard them. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I love that. And this, this is bad. We've got to get rid of this guy because whatever he ate might be contagious. Now we're not sure what they actually thought at this point other than they had the fear and we believe it's the fear of the Lord. And now it was about three, three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So she's in on it, but she's not totally in on it. You see, that's the way deception works. That's the way lying goes. That's the way telling partial truths, half-truths, kind of, sort of, getting your story going so you can get someone believing something. You don't even share the whole truth with your wife. Brothers and sisters, we are people of the truth. And I want to tell you something right now. As people of the truth, we're going to stand before God one day for how we shared the truth with people that we know and love. Tell your spouse the truth about everything. When you hide the truth, look what happens to Sapphira. She didn't actually know. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. In other words, what price did you sell it for? And she said, yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? In other words, how did you think you were going to fool God with that? You'd be amazed at how many times when Someone asked me simple questions. The Lord has revealed uh, at least a part of the answer. Or maybe someone has already come to me and given me some of the backstory uh, about those things which they're about to share with me. And, and very often you can see the story unfold. And you can see them protecting themselves. And in essence emboldening their own hypocrisy. By saying, well, you know, this is what happened, when I already know that isn't what happened. And the hole just keeps getting dug deeper. Can I give you a little secret? If you want to get out of a hole, stop digging. When you have to jump and throw the dirt out of the hole, you're in the hole. And every shovelful is deeper. Quit digging. Don't lie to people. Don't lie to God. You tell them the truth. You see, if you tell the truth, you can forget it. But if you tell a lie, you better remember it. And you better remember the whole lie. And then you better remember which version you told it to what person. 
And when it comes down to lying to God, how much missing information do you think he's going to have? He's going to have all the tidbits and pieces that you conveniently left out. Look at the feet of those who have buried your husband or at the door, and they will carry you out. And then she immediately fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, they buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon those who heard these things. So here the attack comes from the inside. And it doesn't seem like an attack at first unless you look at it very carefully, because what's the attack? The attack is pride. The attack is trying to steal the glory of the Lord. The attack is trying to receive something for oneself that does not belong to you. It belongs to God. You see, this hypocrisy was deliberate deception. It wasn't you kind of sort of missed the mark. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was putting on a, a lovely front to conceal a shabby back. There's a poem, and I have no idea who the author of it is. I, I found it in Bible Illustrator a number of years ago, but it's perfect for this passage. And it says, they build the front just like St. Mark's or like Westminster Abbey. And then, as if to cheat the Lord, they make the back parts shabby. If you know anything about Hollywood, very often the movie sets on the back sides are completely just open construction materials. The fronts may look like some massive building, but on the back sides there's kickers run off the back of the framework, and it, it's just a facade. That's what we call them. They're facades. Don't let your life be a facade for God. It needs to be the real building made out of precious things, gold and silver and precious stones. It can't be made out of lies and deception. It can't be made out of half-truths. It cannot be made out of stealing the glory of the Lord. It needs to be the real deal. There is no backside to your life from God's perspective. He sees the front and the back simultaneously. So whatever's back there behind the curtain... All of us remember the Wizard of Oz, right? Oh, great and mighty Oz! You know, the whole thing. He's back there and some old dude sitting in a chair clanging bells and bashing cymbals and, you know, making lightning and there's nothing happening. That's the backside. Oh, it looked great and mighty from the front side. But behind it was someone who couldn't make good on the promises. I'm sorry, but I can't give you a new heart. God can give you a new heart. I can't give you courage. God can give you courage, real courage. God can take away that timidity. You see, you, you don't want to be like the Wizard of Oz. You don't want to conceal the shabby parts of the backside of your life. Now, having said all this, God is so gracious and so kind, amen? And so good to us. 
but his word is true. God's not mocked. Do not be deceived. Whatever a man sows, whatever a woman sows, that we shall also reap. Galatians 6 is so clear on that. Ananias and Sapphira were energized by the wrong guy. You know, we're kind of shocked. It's like, man, God killed him over a business transaction. But that's not really the story, is it? They were trying to steal the glory of the Lord. Oh, look how awesome we are for you, God. When they weren't awesome at all. Look what we're doing for you, God. When they were doing nothing for the Lord. It was a pittance compared to what they could have given. Don't get caught up in that. Oliver Wendell Holmes, for all of his faults and weaknesses and some of the crazy things he he wrote, he, he had some zingers regarding the Bible. He said, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle that fits them all. You look back through your own life, through the lives of people that you know, you're going to find out most of the time, people who are thieves are also liars because they don't come, hey, I stole your stuff. They say, no, I didn't take your stuff. People who are adulterers, they don't tell you, well, you know, know, with your husband, your wife, you know. No, they, they tell you they weren't. Do you get the picture? You know what the last warning in the Bible is? And all liars will have no part in the kingdom. Read it. It's a bad thing. We need to be people of the truth. We need to tell the truth. We need to be the truth. We need to live the truth. And we must not make our front sides beautiful while our backsides are shabby. Because God sees the backside. Their sin was motivated by pride. It's very easy to see. It's one that God hates, and He hates it supremely. Because it's a contest between us and him. That was also the pride of Satan, by the way. Wasn't it? Read Isaiah 14. You'll see it for yourself. Satan wanted God's glory. Don't try and take God's glory. Let God be God. Whatever we possess, it's nothing more than God's given to you. Recognize that. You own nothing while you're on this earth. God owns everything. We, we call them our cars or my cars or our house or my house or my clothes or whatever. If God stops being Jehovah Jireh, our provider, then we're having nothing because it's all his. So don't try and make it look like you're doing more than you really are because God knows where it came from in the first place. That's the moral to this story. It's an insidious thing to begin to put yourself in the place of God in your own life. And I think most of the time that self-deception is the very worst kind of deception. And it appears as though Ananias and Sapphira were self-deceived. And they crept into the church and they tried to poison the church from the inside. And I want you to notice what God did. God took them out. 
God took them out. Peter didn't take them out. John didn't take them out. They didn't get a committee together and go, you know what, you're dead now. We're going to bring you before the church council and you're out of here. That isn't what happened. Because God could see the shabby parts behind. He said, that is so infectious and so poisonous, I'm going to take them out. This is one of those passages of Scripture that the book of Hebrews talks about, by the way. Or in Hebrews chapter 10, you know what it says there, right? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't say that to scare anyone. The reality is, if you leave God in his place, you're in a great place. You let God be God, you're good. But you try and be God... That's a really bad thing. So let God be God. Respect his position for who he is. I'm going to have the worship team come back up and come out. And having delivered this message, I I recognize that maybe there are some of you here tonight, it's like, wow. You're thinking through some of your own life. You go, well, you know, I've really, in, in some small way maybe, you just feel that tug of the Holy Spirit like, I've been trying to steal God's glory. I've been trying to make myself the object of praise. Maybe pride has crept into your life and you need to deal with that. There's no better place to do that than at the table of the Lord. Probably many of you were here this morning, so you've already partaken today. But maybe this is an opportunity the Lord's shown you something in your own life. That you just need to surrender to God. While we worship for a little bit, and the communion tables are open, cast your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And whatever it is, confess it. Let Him have it. The fact that you're still here, Maybe it's something you've been hiding from your spouse. Maybe it's something that you've been hiding from your boss at work. Maybe it's something that you told someone that, that you know wasn't true, but it made you look more spiritual. Why don't you let God make you more spiritual so that you're more spiritual? Why don't you give God your whole heart. Why don't you be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, so that what you say is truth? And for the rest of us, maybe you came tonight, you're just, you and God are doing awesome. Then we get a chance to pray for our brothers and sisters. We get a chance to pray for our family tonight. We get a chance to pray for our own spouses tonight that the Lord would shield us. Those of us that are doing well, God's blessed us and the Lord is working in our lives. We get to pray for our kids tonight. We get to ask God to to create in us a new heart. Oh Lord, as David prayed, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You, You don't want to be a place that Ichabod happens. The glory departed. You want to be a place that's multiplying, that the light of the Lord, the love of your life is shining in your life and it's beaming back out to other people. Because that's the kind of church we want to be. 
That's the kind of husbands and wives we want to be. That's the kind of children we want to be and raise. That's the kind of community we want to see. And so let's spend some time just simply worshiping the Lord at the table. Before you go, pray. Thank God for those elements, those beautiful, wonderful representations of his broken body and his shed blood, the grace that we've received. And once we've spent some time in worship and the pastors are going to come forward and be available to pray with you, and I'll come back up and we'll close. We'll head home expectant of the good things of the Lord to happen in his place. Amen? Let's worship.